You do catch us at the very end of a, of a series, though. Today is our last uh, take at the little book of Esther. And Esther is on page 414 uh, in the Bibles there we provided for you. It's a 10-chapter uh, story uh, in the Old Testament before our Lord Jesus came into that manger so long ago. This is even longer. We're about 437 B.C. before Christ. And uh, Esther, as we've been learning, is kind of a marvelous story. It's a very uh, uh, interesting story. It's, it's a well-written story. It is a true story. It's about the story of a king named Ahasuerus. Uh, in Greek, he's King Xerxes in the history books. And it's about how he uh, rashly deposes uh, one queen and how uh, the Lord raises up of all people an orphan, an immigrant even, not even a Persian by blood, but a Jewess, uh, a, people of God's, a person of God's uh, people who uh, had lost both her parents, was raised by her older cousin, uh, a young man uh, named Mordecai, and how Esther was placed for just such a time as this in a specific strategic place. And uh, one of the messages, the insights from Esther is that perhaps the Lord has raised you for such, just such a time as this and put you at just such a place uh, as where you're at. And it's this incredible story about how God does a great reversal and there's a villain in the story. Every good story includes a villain, otherwise they're just kind of boring. Well, this guy is named Haman. And this is the story about how God delivers the Jews from a holocaust. Uh, there have, we know, if you know much about history at all, it seems that the Jews in particular are a despised people historically over millennia, and there have been multiple occasions where certain groups or peoples have tried to, to wipe them out. It happened in uh, the time of Esther as well. And it's the story about how God rescues the people. And uh, there's this great reversal. We talked about it last time, how God in his providence arranged all these things. And Mordecai, who was, a, who was slated to be dead the next morning, uh, in the providence of God, the king uh, has a sleepless night. And instead of Mordecai being killed, he gets exalted uh, to a great prominent position. And his enemy, Haman, the villain, has to parade him around the city. And, uh, and then Esther drops the news. She drops the, the news that the villain, the foe, the enemy of her who wanted her blood and all the blood of, of all of her people was this indeed Haman. And the king goes berserk um, and uh, leaves, catches, catches his wits, comes back, finds uh, Haman kind of throwing herself, himself on the queen or at her feet. And he interprets that uh, maliciously, has the guy hooded and executed that moment. Uh, on the very gallows, the very spear or spike, so to speak, that, that he had raised to take Mordecai out. It's quite a story, and uh, we had kind of a dramatic reading last time, but here we are. So Esther and Mordecai have been delivered. They've been saved, but the danger remains for all of their kin. Now, I think probably at this point, Esther and Mordecai are out of danger, even though they are Jews. Uh, the king thinks and regards them so highly, no one would dare touch them, even though the edict has come out already from the king, that anyone uh, could annihilate, destroy, uh, plunder the, uh, the Jews people. I don't think anyone was, would dare do that to these two. But now Esther needs to try to rescue not only uh, her blood, her skin, but the skin of all the Jews, uh, all of her people. So we're going to read chapter 8 and 9. 
and the little bitty three verse 10. So uh, we're going to finish out the story of Esther. I've tried to get you up to speed. Um, and this is quite a marvelous tale about how the Lord uh, rescues his people. And it's also a little bit difficult uh, reading today. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. In Esther chapter 8, verse 1, we, we pick up the tale, uh, the story of how Esther now comes to the king for the request to save her people. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and, and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, If it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight... And if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language." And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, wrote out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. 
The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought them their harm. And no, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshendatha and Delphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Viazatha. That's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> uh, the ten sons of Haman, who was really poor at writing, naming his sons, apparently. Uh, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day, they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies 
And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadath of the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim after the name, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what is written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim, Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he had sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. There's the ending of Esther. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, as we tackle this remarkable story, uh, this account, the fourth installment, uh, we've, we're, we're biting off a lot, Lord, and there's some troubling things we read here that are hard for our Western ears to hear. Uh, give us grace uh, to know you rightly and to fully and to not mischaracterize you one way or another. O oh Lord, uh, lead us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake and teach us how it is uh, we ought to live. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know. This chapter doesn't sound like a very good Advent chapter, does it? <laughs> uh, you know, we sing, I love that song, Go Tell It on the Mountain, that Jesus Christ was born. Didn't you love that swingy kind of feel? I liked it. And uh, this, this seems like the, almost the antithesis of, of Christmas in a way. It seems uh, at first blush, if you've never read this, like what's going on here? Is, is, are these people like bloodthirsty? Like what's, why didn't they just show mercy and all that? What's, what, is, what do we got going on here? I think in the West, uh, we have a hard time sometimes with these kinds of sections in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, and certainly this is uh, one of them. And we look at what Mordecai does and what Esther does and we wonder what is going on here. 
And I want to talk to you about that a little bit and, and try to unpack this with that question in mind. And not so we can explain away, let's never explain away scripture, but let's try to understand it fully, right? And apply it, apply it uh, truly. And uh, I, I think one of the big things we have to say right at the on, on, onset is that you remember when Jesus came and, and he was... There was this effort even then to wipe the Messiah off the planet. Do you remember? There was a king named Herod. Remember King Herod? He actually killed all the infant boys in a little town called Bethlehem. Do you remember that? So what you need to know at the very beginning before we even interpret this section of scripture is that this is a real and present danger. This is an edict in Persia that still stands, even though Haman is the writer of it and the, you know, sealed it with the king's ring. The edict still stands. The threat is still real. And the threat is simply from the bowels of, hate, of hell, essentially, wipe out the line of the Messiah that's supposed to come. De- deliberately destroy what God has uh, in his eye, the people of his favor, the Jews, and destroy any potential for the Redeemer, the King of the universe, to come. So that is the, the bigger picture. You look from Genesis to Revelation, right in the middle is this story, Esther. And Esther uh, is the story about how, once again, the Lord God shielded and protected the line of his people, uh, his redeemed people, his remnant, and how he relentlessly and carefully protected the Redeemer for, to come. So that is the big lie of the land. Now, let's look at the actual details because what Mordecai does is brilliant. I mean, it is like one of the most, uh, it makes lawyers in our culture like stand up and pay attention and give the guy a standing ovation (laughs) because what he does is a genius move. Uh, and, and we wonder, how did he know how to do this? Especially in a book that never mentions the word God, never uses the name of the Yahweh or the Lord. Uh, I would argue, here's my, my, my uh, case, is that, that though God is silent in the book, the people in the book who are meant to be heroes, I think, Mordecai and Esther, live like God is still there. Like his rules still apply. Like the scriptures, even when God is silent, that they should still obey them and implement them and use them. And what I think what Mordecai does, he knows the law. He's a leader of the people. He's a relatively wealthy man relative to uh, being second in command. He certainly had, I think, a copy of the Torah, the first five books, especially the law, and used that to be a righteous judge, a righteous ruler in his time. And God lifts him up. And so I'm going to show you from the passage that I think helps us to filter and interpret what's going on here. And I'm going to take you to Deuteronomy. Would you bring that up, Mr. Tony? Thank you. And this is a passage, uh, and I'll tell you why I'm going to bring you to this in a moment as I go along. But this is part of the, the law of God. And this may seem like an obscure connection, but let me just say this. When God is silent in your life, and you don't have a present, like, God making it clear what door you're supposed to go through, what you should do in detail. It's never wrong to fully obey God's word. It is never wrong to just do what you already know he has said. Now, Mordecai and Esther, they don't have any of the New Testament yet. So we ought not to judge them by the words of Jesus, which are often misapplied, by the way, that you should turn the other cheek. We should love our enemies. Uh, They don't have that yet. They don't have that full unpacking, but they do have the Old Testament. So we ought to evaluate them uh, on the terms of that. And I think if you do so, you'll agree with me that Mordecai was doing what he, the word of God at that time had to say in in this scope in the Old Testament. And this is the text I think that's really interesting. 
the, the Moses on the mountain, he, he gives this amazing sermon. He lays out and boils down, you might say, a lot of things, including how to judge very difficult matters, how to discern what to do when it seems like humanly in some situations quite impossible to deal with. And, and he writes this. This is Deuteronomy 19, uh, the 18th through the 21st verse. And I'm going to really be looking carefully at this text, using it almost like a lens or filter to look at the rest of Esther with you. Uh, the word of God says this, that judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his own brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, I want to look at this, that text with you, thinking through this rather interesting, bloody section of Scripture. The first thing, I have eight observations. The first is this one. The word says, the judges. Now, pause and think about who Mordecai and Esther are. We read stories like Esther, and we're thinking American individual. We're thinking a personal relationship with Jesus. We're reading it through that filter as though we were on the same par as Mordecai and Esther. There's not a person in this room who have the responsibility and official uh, roles that Esther and Mordecai have at this moment. Are any of us king or queen of the land? <laughs> Is there a prime minister in our midst? Oh, seeing none, let's be careful here. <laughs> Mordecai and Esther are acting like judges, okay? These are not just average people. This is not just a personal vendetta, okay? The, these are people who are judges. They're rulers of the land. They're prime minister, second in command, the, a queen, the queen of the land, Esther. And it, Romans 13 talks about in the new covenant after Christ comes, it even talks about how God still puts the sword in the hands of his leaders for a reason. He says in Romans 13, the scripture says that the, that the ruler or the, the officials like this the prime minister, you might say, in more in our context, or president, you might say, is the servant of God. He is the avenger who carries out God's wrath on his wrongdoer. So they are sanctioned official judges, uh, Mordecai and Esther are. So that's the first thing to notice. And it says in Deuteronomy that the judge, those who are in official, in high positions, who, who are needing to uh, watch out and care and advocate justice and things like that for people around them, they are to inquire diligently. And that's exactly where Ahasuerus fell so horribly. This man, when Haman came to him with an idea, hey, king, did you know that there's these people... You don't need to know who they are, what their name or anything is. These are these people, they're all everywhere. They're just kind of a fly in the ointment. They're really annoying. And uh, how about I pay you two-thirds of the annual GDP to get rid of them? Uh, would you mind if I do that? Hey, let's just, okay, let's just go drink about it. Should we just go drink? Let's just go drink. That's, that's one of the themes in, in Esther, is the place of wine and of, of, of indulging in that over much. Uh, in fact, uh, we read in our family worship in Ecclesiastes, it says, Woe to a people uh, when the princes, when the powers that be, drink at the wrong times and for the wrong reasons. That's kind of how King Hoasuerus is. And, and he sort of comes to Esther when she comes to him a second time about, Hey, well, thanks for saving my life. My paraphrase how she says it. But what about my people? 
And Ahasuerus is like, well, I mean, decrees that are issued in my name. I mean, how is this going to play in the newspaper, honey? I mean, if I revoke my thing, I, I don't know. Mordecai, you figure it out. That's kind of what he does. I'm going to go drink. <laughs> he just kind of abandons his post. That's what the king is presented as. He's abandoning his post. He's, he's quite a, a poor character. In contrast to him, Mordecai does come out. I mean, he's described in ways that are meant to elevate him in our assessment. Royal blue robes. It says a very large gold crown. He's described as a man of good character, a righteous judge, in fact. And in fact, it says he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. So, Certainly, uh, Mordecai is described as a judge who inquires diligently and tries to figure this out. And that's partly, thirdly, why I come to this passage, because how the king is right. He can't just revoke the edict in the laws of the Medes and Persians. Even the king is subject to that. The edict's gone out. You can't just erase it now. So that means the Jews are, he's in a real pickle. The Jews are threatened. How are we going to rescue them? against and in the face of an unjust, a wicked law. And he does something marvelous. And that's why I, I really wonder, and I'll ask maybe Mordecai one day in heaven, whether he had in mind this principle in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that it says in Deuteronomy 19, verse 8, that if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother, that you should try to turn tables on him. And Haman had certainly been false, falsely accusing the Jews as though they were ones who did not uh, keep the laws of the, of God, of the king. And, 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 then, and then the king should stop tolerating them. He turns the tables. It says there, then you shall do to him, verse 19, you shall do to him, this is a word to the judge, you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. And this is really quite marvelous because what, what uh, Mordecai does is he, he does a great reversal as the, it's a genius move that I, I gotta believe he was inspired by scripture to do. That here, Haman and the enemies get the very thing that they had intended to do to the Jews. In chapter 3 in the 13th verse, I'm going to read that. The first edict is described this way. And, and we're meant to see the exact same words are used as are used in the edict uh, that, that uh, Mordecai writes. And there's an intention behind that because it's an implementation of that command of the judge to, to the very terms that had been set against you. Now, you've reversed it and used those terms against the person who had intended to sin against you and harm you. In verse 13 of chapter 3, here's how the description is of the first edict. Letters were sent. This is from Haman on, in the name of the king Ahasuerus. The, the letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to, here it is, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. I won't read it again because it was such a long reading, but if you look back now at chapter 8, 11, and 12, which is the recording of the edict that Mordecai writes, he copied and pasted the bulk of the other edict to use it now in the face of their enemies. Same day, 13th day, 12th month, same activity, exact same wording actually, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate, same limit, all their enemies. Even women and children are mentioned. Same, again, phrase. The reward is also named to plunder their goods. So since the first edict can't be revoked, this is an, a genius tactical move 
It's got to stay in place, but let's issue a second edict that's kind of competing. And so essentially you set into motion this legal like battle, not against brother against brother, but more edict against edict. And the real question that the rest of Esther is meant to, we would wonder, well, which edict is going to win? You know, the Jews are the minority. They are way outnumbered and uh, they are an odd people. Uh, so they're, you know, odd people are, are, are often picked on, and uh, that's true to this day, though this is a unique people because they're of the line of Abraham, and Abraham is the father of faith, and there ain't nothing that Satan hates more than those who trust the Lord. So a decree against decree, and the fifth thing you notice in verse 21, it says that it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for for foot. Now, when that was given, again, th- we often think this is bad, like this is a horrible thing, but, but wh- it's not saying that you have to do this. It's saying this is the limit of punishment. If someone, remember the evil that, that started uh, happening uh, after Adam fell into sin and in the seventh generation, Lamech, this brash guy, the first guy who is recorded in history as marrying more than one wife, he's also the guy that said, someone slapped me and I killed him. Like what? <laughs> it was it was offensive, right? He 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 uh, he, he disproportionately uh, punished this person or responded. But the decree that Mordecai writes is proportional in its judgment. What has been written in the first decree is now also written in the second decree. So it's decree against decree. And the record shows here that on that day in Susa, the citadel, five hundred enemies, including those ten hard to pronounce sons of Haman, <laughs> were killed. When the king gives the okay, he then gives a second date, and when Esther requests that, uh, to root out something. And I think, again, remember, Esther and Mordecai are in the citadel. They are in high and prominent positions of authority. This isn't an average city where the second day is given. This is like the Washington, D.C. of the empire, right? This is where the poison, where the evil is most likely to be present. Uh, Those who would prey on the wicked, who would use their power viciously and wickedly. And in uh, that second day, another 300 people were killed. So a grand total of 800 in that one massive city. And then the big number is given for the whole empire of about 30 million people. 75,000 were killed. And it says there, of those who hated the Jews. Those who hated the Jews. I I think partly we can't relate to that because none of us, we all have various backgrounds. Some of you might even have uh, some of the Jewish ethnicity in your background. Uh, Certainly if you're in Christ, you have that spiritual heritage, but none of us have had to go into, let's say the high school or gone to our town council or or, or seen someone write or spray paint on a wall, uh, no dogs or Jews allowed here. We haven't had to see that sort of stuff. Uh, the Jewish people have had to see that uh, generation and generation out. And uh, there has been a relentless attack over millennia to destroy what is precious in the eyes of God. And this pro- sense of proportionality, proportionality and judgment or justice is actually true justice. And I think partly, uh, you know, I think it should give us pause as Westerners because we tend to have a, a, a pride about us. So we think we have it right. And the rest of the world is backwards. Uh, and I think we've got to be careful with this. Uh, for my, in my just humble opinion, I guess, as I view even our own backyard here, let's say Waukesha, Wisconsin, I think about what, uh, what has happened recently, and I don't see it as justice. I think, and I wonder if miscarriage has occurred. 
I mean, because when a guy can deliberately drive into a, a Christmas parade and kill five people, wounding 40 plus people, and then he is convicted of that, but what does he get in, in response for that wicked act? Well, the taxpayers for the rest of this man's life from his 41st birthday, 41st birthday on will get to pay $30,000 a year to support him, to put him in prison. Is that justice? For us to pay for two, three, however many decades the man lives, to put him in what in, relatively to the world is a very secure place, a relatively comfortable place where he doesn't have to work for his food and shelter. It's not for me to say, but I, I would, if it were my daughter that were mowed down by this man's vehicle, I would say this is a miscarriage of justice. I would. Now, th- that doesn't mean we'd be vindictive as people and vengeful, but the sword was given to the, the state for a reason, to curb such evil. Part of why evil is becoming uh, so prevalent is we have denied the basic doctrine that our founders in our country said that we need to check each other because we are sinners, we need a balance of powers because if we can, we will abuse our power and our influence. And so we need uh, curbs. We need to check each other. And, and I like what one lawyer I, I happened to meet some years ago. He said, I was talking to him about the justice system, and he immediately cut me off. And he said, the United States does not have the justice system in place. We have the finality system in place. So this man did get away with it who ran into these people. And I, I don't... It's above my pay grade to, to modify these things, but I think we must be very careful because Esther will, would, would urge us as a book. In verse 21 of this text, it says so very well, you sh- your eye shall not pity. That's what it says, your eye shall not pity. Why? Because it is quite possible to pity the wrong party. Wickedness is an evil. It is a poison, and we're not to tolerate poison. And I would say that it's quite possible that Mordecai and Esther were dealing with poison at the governmental level, and that's why they asked for a second day. They probably were closer to the situation, well, they were closer to the situation than you and I were, and they knew what was righteous and just. And although God isn't sanctioned in this in the sense that he's not blamed for their actions, at least it's possible that God allowed this to happen, and a threat was averted for the Jews and also for the empire. Uh, more broadly, you may say, oh, come on, how, 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 can you really say that the Jews are doing this for the sake of the empire, for other people? Well, notice how the people respond. And, and, and before I get there, actually, I want to show you this map. Can you bring the map up, Tony? Because if we think about how extensive was the threat, really, when Haman said, and he sends these fast horses out with that edict, and Mordecai does the same, what the edict was state, stated as that Jews throughout the Persian Empire would be killed, could be killed, both men, women, and children, and all their stuff plundered and, and used as a spoil of war. Which means in this map, everywhere where you see this like reddish color, if there was a Jew living in that area, they were legally could be attacked, wiped out without recourse when Haman issues this edict. Now look at that. That means the Jews that have been scattered, and Seuss is a fair way away. It's on the right hand, kind of the center right of the map. Jews that had made it to India, 
after being exiled and scattered. Those who'd gone to Greece, those who were in Asia Minor, those who were back in the Promised Land, they were under threat. Jerusalem was under the pale of this threat. You know, if you read about Nehemiah, you know that there were people who were against the Jews who did everything they could to, to hurt them and hinder them. Even Jews that had gone to Egypt who thought they were as far away from this danger of Susa as possible, even they were being threatened. The point is, throughout the known world, wherever the Jews had scattered, they were being threatened by this edict. So all the Jews were threatened. And uh, back to Deuteronomy, in verse 19, it says that you shall purge the evil from your midst and the threat that the Haman as a villain represented, that God was doing this amazing reversal because this is incredible when you think about it. Essentially what happened when Haman issued the first edict is everyone who secretly was greedy and really wanted to murder his neighbor to take his house and his yacht and his donkey or whatever, thought to themselves, I can now legally murder my neighbor. I can take their stuff. And so all the poisonous, wicked, self-absorbed, self-seeking people stood up and began to rally and prepare to steal from the Jews. So it's like, it's this amazing thing that God does. He uses the first edict to sort of flush out all the rats. <laughs> he flushes out all the rats in the whole Persian empire. Now, what a God can do this, can allow his people to be threatened with, with death to flush out the wickedness so that a righteous judge like Mordecai might step in and, and, and uh, strategically, and I would say surgically precise, remove 75,000 rats from the empire. Wow. Can our God reverse the tables and somehow in his providence and his power maintain the righteous while at the same time judging the wicked? He can. Second Peter says that to us. He is able to sustain his people while cutting out cancer. That's the kind of God we know. He did this in the era of Mordecai and Esther. He flushes those rats out so that they were identified and so that the, the, the Jews in each corner of the, of, the, uh, of the Persian Empire could now identify who they were. In fact, the edict is very narrow when you actually read it carefully because Mordecai's edict says they could only attack their enemies. Those who had uh, armed themselves to attack the Jews. So it wasn't a, they couldn't kill anyone and everyone. This is a very proportional, uh, just, just description of how they could respond to their enemies. Now in verse 19, it says that you shall purge the evil from your midst. And they sought to do that, I think. They were helping the whole kingdom. In fact, if you want to get a sense that this was actually the case, you would compare how the empire as a whole, the outsiders, the non-Jews respond to the various edicts. In Esther chapter 3, in the 15th verse, this is the response to the first edict that that villain Haman issued. In uh, Esther 3.15, says this, The king and Haman sat down to drink, surprise, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Or your text might say bewilderment is a good translation too. They were like, what? what's going on here? And I think anyone with their wits about it were thinking, if they're coming for the Jews now, who will they come for next? They were in great bewilderment and confusion because Haman was not to be thwarted. He was full of himself. But what about that second degree? How did the outsiders respond to the second decree, Mordecai's competing decree. Look at verse 15 of chapter 8. And, and again, this is just data. We're just trying to assess this on what actually happened on the ground because we weren't there. 
In verse 15, it says this, that when Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes, of blue and white, great big golden crown, robe of fine linen and purple, it says this, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Okay, so the king goes and drinks with Haman and everyone's bewildered. Mordecai issues a, a competing decree and everyone rejoices. Why? Because in opposed to taking life, they're actually defending life. What they're really doing is cutting out the cancer of those who would, if I may say it, pillage others, murder others, and use others however they wish. And so the Jews become sort of God's cops, I guess, in a way, uh, in the Persian Empire for this one brief season. Of course, we know in history that the battle, the dark battle continues, and, and there's other efforts to destroy the Jews that will come out in the next generations. In Deuteronomy 19 and the 20th verse, let me make this last point, this last observation from God's word, which we're trying to you know, evaluate or understand and interpret Mordecai's actions here. It says in verse 20 that the rest, that means other people, the outsiders beyond the people who are being judged, the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. The rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. What Mordecai's decree did essentially was cut off wickedness for a time, for a season, for a generation. And, and how? By applying the law of God, by being righteous in, in his approach. I think our national mood is wrong. I, I, I see what's going on. All these signs about kindness. This is not the time for kindness being king. Please carefully don't misrepresent what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Jesus is king. And when he comes back, he's not described as coming in humiliation the second time. In fact, how is he described? He has a sword for a tongue. Remember that? He's sitting on a white stallion, a horse of war. Well, what is he having his people do? What are, if we're in his ranks, what does he have us do? Does he have us raise our swords or spears, take our knives out? None of us. We are involved in the battle. We're just testimony. We're just witnesses. We, that's how we are now. That's how we'll be in the future. We're just witnesses. He is the champion who slays the enemies of God. He sounds an awful lot like, more like Mordecai than, than a pushover in some of our uh, picture books of these days. The Lord Jesus is coming back with great power. And it says throughout here in this section how the fear of the people, God apparently moved and people were afraid of the Jews. They're afraid of Mordecai. They're afraid of everything uh, because they realize that, that God is doing something here. Uh, and the fear of the Lord, says the book of Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. And here, may I press this last thing upon you. This application is this. The Lord is coming back. So you should bow now. You should respond now and yield to him. And even if, as, you, as I made this case, and you're not convinced, and you think Mordecai went too far, and Esther went too far, and they, they might have. They're sinners. They, they could have gone too far. They could have gotten carried away. I'm not denying that. I think they tried to do it rightly, but they might have got carried away. Here's what I do know. There is a king who's coming who will not get carried away. There is a great and righteous king on the throne of this universe. And though he lets, it seems like, Haman's edicts have their day, 
Dear people, do not be frustrated with wickedness having their day. This is the only day they get. Christ gets every day going forward. Every day. This righteous judge is coming. So you want to be prepared for him and live in light of him and live under the fear of the Lord and apply true righteousness and rightly tempered righteous mercy to your children, to others. You are ruling in various spheres. None of us are prime minister. We don't think the Lord have that much responsibility, but you do have some responsibility to press in the law of God, the mercy of God, the gospel of God into your children and to others around you in your workplace. And here's the thing, live as Jesus is king. Live like a righteous judge is coming and, and point those around you to the one who will redeem all who die for him. I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And when those thousand years were ended, Satan was released from his prison. He came out and amazingly continued to deceive the nations. Everyone, after a thousand years of righteous, perfect reign, of Christ and those who were in his dynasty, you might say, they had had enough. They thought their chance was here. The son had come back to the vineyard. Let's kill the son and take the spoil of the war. Let's murder his children, the sons and daughters of the living God. And Gog and Magog, they gathered together for battle and the number was like the sand of the seashore someday. They marched up and there was a broad plain on the earth. They had surrounded the camp of the saints, that beloved city, and fire fell from heaven and consumed them. The enemies of God, the devil who had deceived them was thrown forever into the lake of fire and burning sulfur where that beast and false prophet had previously been thrown. They were tormented day and night, but the children of God went into paradise and lived into a garden city, into a place where there was a tree, the tree of life with a dozen types of fruit. Each month of the year, something beautiful and lush and delicious and the city of God had the light of God, the presence of the righteous king in its midst perfect righteousness without sin, without corruption. And God's people live forever, and they had a happy ever after ending. <laughs> That's all in the future. Now, I know we're in this season between when the edict of Haman has come out, and we wonder, Lord, how will you turn the tables on evil? In my life, in our community, in our society, I cannot see how you will do it, Lord. He did it in Mordecai's time, he will do it in our time. We have only to wait for him. And if we are beheaded in between now and his return, so be it. He is worth it, for his righteous reign shall be accomplished. We have only to trust him and know that his plan is better than ours. Our Lord, we humble ourselves before you. You are a mighty judge. We read in the scriptures, the New Testament even declares the Apostle Paul, who lived in light of the gospel and the mercy that you offered, said that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that one day we must all stand before you, Lord Jesus, as the judge and give an accounting for the things that we have done on this earth and the body, whether good or bad. And I know that outside of here, and maybe in our own hearts to one degree or another, we are greatly disappointed by this announcement, and we, we suspect you. We do not trust you. We wonder what's going on. I know that outsiders do not want a judge, and certainly do not want Jesus as judge. 
But the more I know you, the more we study of you, the more in awe we are of how forgiveness can be given, consequences for sin brought down, cancer cut out, mercy and justice. And at the end of the day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In Christ's name.